From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, May 13th. There's been a battle over appointing an interim county attorney in San Juan. Kendall Laws resigned from the elected position back in March. San Juan is split nearly equally between a Native American and white population. The county was controlled handily by the Republican Party until fairly recently. Now, two out of three commissioners are Democratic Party members and Native American. The county has long, simmering political tensions, which can erupt even when trying to fill a temporary county attorney position. The fight over the interim job has now led to a lawsuit and bitter feelings. Justin Higginbottom reports on the latest developments. Four applicants, all Republicans, expressed interest in the role of interim San Juan County attorney. Per procedure, those applicants were passed to the San Juan County Democratic Party for consideration. That's because the previous attorney ran as a Democrat. But the party argued those applications weren't complete. And so commissioners in San Juan, which only has around a dozen attorneys, voted to look outside their county for talent. And that led to those Republican applicants suing the commission alleging they were rejected because they aren't Democrats. Finally, this week, the county commission was set to vote for an interim attorney, except two resolutions were provided for the task. The first one, the first resolution, fairly simple, like I mentioned. The second one is a little bit more troublesome and and concerning to me. The second resolution on here, the alternate resolution, kind of is for me more of a, a history lesson written in Uh, a resolution. That's Mac McDonald during a county commission meeting on May 11th. He's the interim, interim county attorney. That second resolution he mentioned was provided by Democratic Commissioner Kenneth Maryboy. And other than just voting someone into office, it includes some details. His resolution notes, quote, the county has a long history of violating the civil rights of its Native American citizens and that Native Americans on reservations in Utah couldn't vote until 1957. And that voting rights litigation, which began when Craig Halls was the county attorney and continued with Kendall Laws, cost taxpayers nearly $4 million. Craig Halls is an applicant for county attorney and a plaintiff in the lawsuit against the commission. Here's McDonald again. So I get concerned where the second resolution calls out specific individuals who, you know, as county, and I'll just be specific with it, as county attorneys in that capacity, it, it kind of calls them out for being elected officials and doing their job. And here's Commissioner Mary Boy. And again, the, uh, the resolution is not alleging blame. It's merely stating the facts. That's it. Commissioner Bruce Adams is the lone Republican. Here's Adams. I'm just amazed that we are to this point when a month ago we could have done the very same thing we're doing today, but apparently there, there, there's a need on the part of uh, somebody to give a history lesson uh, by way of a resolution that absolutely, in my opinion, has nothing to do with what we're, we're tasked to do. Adams said he was only willing to vote using the first resolution, the one without the details of Native American discrimination. I've never seen anything like this in my life in politics. But 
this is as probably as bad as as politics can get in this county and um, I think it's unmerited to instruct everybody on a history lesson dating back to whenever. For people like Democratic Commissioner Willie Grayeyes, that history is personal. Here's Grayeyes. You're talking about history, and uh, I guess history hurts. Yes, and uh, it has been hurting for a long time, Native American. So we're still here. Mary Boy and Grayeyes voted in favor of using the second resolution to fill the position. Brittany Ivins got the job. Adams said he was in favor of voting in Ivins, but couldn't vote for her using Mary Boy's resolution. Meanwhile, Craig Halls told the county that if that resolution which mentioned him was used, he wouldn't likely drop his lawsuit. So San Juan County has an interim attorney now, but might still go to court. Deputy County Attorney and Republican Alex Goebel is running unopposed for the position of county attorney. He's the only one that made that filing deadline. And that election is in November. Justin Higginbottom for KZMU News. The U.S. Department of the Interior announced a new round of funding for water projects this week. As KUNC's Alex Hager reports, it's coming from the bipartisan infrastructure law. The money will help repair aging water systems across a region in the grips of historic drought, covering everything from canals in Wyoming, Arizona, and Nevada to a pipeline in Utah. In total, $240 million is getting allocated for improvements across 11 states. Projects in Colorado and California will also get funding for repairs. Interior Secretary Deb Holland says this will help safe guard water supplies and revitalize delivery systems. Conservation groups say there's an urgent need for federal spending on water projects in the region as drought is forcing users to get creative with the shrinking supply. I'm Alex Hager. Listener, we are proud to announce that our five-part mini-series called Lift Up LGBTQ Plus Visibility has been honored with a regional Edward R. Murrow Award. Our series won in the category Excellence in Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. We created this project in the wake of the double homicide of local couple Kylan Schulte and Crystal Turner. Their deaths caused many in our community to feel pain and experience trauma. KZMU responded to the need to widen the lens on the queer experience in Moab by elevating and sharing stories from LGBTQ plus community members. We are honored to have done so and honored by this recognition. The Edward R. Murrow Awards are among the most prestigious in broadcast and digital news. They've honored outstanding achievements in electronic journalism since 1971. Station manager Sarah Mead explains why winning a regional Murrow Award is meaningful for KZMU. So this regional Murrow Award is a really big deal for KZMU. Um, not just because it's it's our first attempt at at receiving an award from the the Edward R. Murrow Awards and actually receiving it, but simply because of the nature of the project itself. It was inspired by a listener who who's also a volunteer DJ um, who identifies as LGBTQ plus and kind of reached out to us um, asking if if KZMU could be a voice 
in the wake of this tragedy, or at least contribute to uh, and offset the the sort of news that was steeped in all this this sadness and tragedy and and uh, there was like a feeling of hopelessness at the time, and so they reached out to us asking if we could do something. <laughs> and so this award is meaningful because it was our attempt, like very DIY attempt, to do something. And we did our best, and we weren't trying to make something that was going to be award-winning. We were just trying to do something that was responsive and responsible and of, by, and for this community. We are proud of and humbled by the storytellers in our first Lift Up series. Thank you, Laura Dufresne, Nicole Croak, Sam Van Wetter, Sally Hodges, Sylvia Bentley, and Matthew A. Jonasaint. This project was done on a shoestring budget with help from previous grants from Wabi Sabi and the Grand County Economic Development Department. Credit is due to editor and producer Sarah Mead, interviewer Ginger Allen, producer me, Molly Marcello, and listener C. White. We all helped get this project off the ground and onto the airwaves. Here's Sarah again. One of the last reasons why this is so meaningful is because of the scale of our station. In relation to other stations that were awarded in our region and also in other regions, KZMU is so small. We have such a small budget in comparison to some of these other stations. We're not an NPR station. We're not supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And it just shows how, you know, fiercely independent community radio is powerful and can make a positive impact in our communities. And it just makes me so proud. You can find Lift Up LGBTQ Plus Visibility on our website, and we'll link to that page in the show notes of today's news. We recognize there is always work to be done to increase empathy and understanding of marginalized communities. So we are continuing the Lift Up series this year with more underrepresented groups in our community. If you'd like to be involved with this project as a subject, producer, or anything else, please reach out to Sarah Mead at S-E-R-A-H at kzmu.org. Now let's head to the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. The city's new police chief took the helm of the department this week. Sophia Fisher with the Times Independent highlights their coverage. Moab Police Department's new chief, uh, Jared Garcia, had his first day on Monday and um, was sworn in on Tuesday. Uh, Garcia is 41 years old. He previously spent nearly 20 years with the Utah Department of Public Safety before coming to helm the local police department. This was his first week on the job, and it looks like he's made you know several comments um, for the Times Independent. You know, what did he talk about? What he's thinking about as as he enters this position? Absolutely, yeah. He's talking about you know his goals and, and what he wants to see come to MPD, um, and the main one that he outlined was hiring. Mm-hmm. There are spots for 17 police officers in the department, and currently only 10. They only actually have 10 officers officers, one of whom is still in training. So definitely a large gap um, in their workforce. Um, And he did acknowledge, you know, how difficult it is to hire people in the Moab area, particularly because of our housing crisis, which he referred to, and the fact that it's really hard to commute from other areas just because of our kind of rural nature. Um, So that's number one. He also talked about the importance of professionalism and high morale Mm -hmm. on the force. He said that uh, the Department of uh, Public Safety had a very high level of professionalism.
nationalism. And he said, I intend to bring that culture here to do the right thing, to be well-trained and competent. All right. So new police chief, um, Jared Garcia. Anything else to mention about the Times Independence um, interview with him in this week's edition? I mean, he did talk about the importance of, you know, giving officers second chances and trying to help train them and help them improve all of the time. So, you know, I'm really excited to hopefully see some, yeah, good, good morale in the department. Okay. Well, thanks for that coverage, Sophia. And where do you want to take us next? Uh, child care. So there's a headline in the TI that says there's absolutely a child care crisis here. Who's saying this? This is a quote. Providers. Wow. I talked with two child care providers and I opened up by saying, hey, is 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 this trend real? And they said, absolutely. Mm. No question. I personally, as somebody who does not have children, had no idea about this. Mm. But apparently... There are way more children under the age of six who need care than there are available spots in the mm. Moab area. This has been an issue for years, but has been exacerbated by COVID, the you know national hiring mm-hmm. shortage, the local housing crisis, all of those factors. So when you sought out to you know ask this question, is there a child care crisis? And you found yes, there is. What is the picture of our child care access right now? You know, if you have a kid, young children, where can you go? So I talked with Rob Walker, who mm-hmm. is the chair of the board of Moab Community Child Care, a local nonprofit. Mm-hmm. And he said he'd been able to find somewhere around 120 to 140 spots for children at licensed child care centers, which could be in-home centers okay. or, you know, private institutions like the Montessori Center. Um, there could be and are other unlicensed providers. Um, but the important difference here is that a provider licensed by the state, if you have your child go to one of those, their tuition can actually get paid by pretty generous state subsidies. Mm. So the demand for licensed centers is often much higher than the demand would be for unlicensed sure. centers. And a lot of parents probably could not afford to pay just out of pocket for an unlicensed provider. Okay. Um, so you set out to kind of profile the child care crisis. Did you find out what needs to happen? Do we need more centers? Do we need more resources? Absolutely. Um, and I actually spoke with the Grand County Economic Development Department about this. Well, they presented to the Grand County Commission because they are actually funneling some money towards this problem. Okay. Which is really exciting, citing it as an economic need because mm-hmm. parents who want to work but can't find someone to take care of their mm-hmm. kids are going to stay home. And, you know, as we all know here, there's a shortage of workers in the Moab area. So, what needs to happen, it sounds like, from their perspective, is a combination of shoring up existing providers, you know, giving mm-hmm. them support because it they held a roundtable and it sounded like some providers were kind of at their wits end mm. trying to make things work. So, you know, that's one portion of it is providing a little bit of support, like hands on help for a couple hours a week to help with running errands and things like that. And then the second part is going to be incentivizing new providers by giving them bonuses like referral bonuses and mentoring capabilities as well. Anything else to mention about your coverage of um, the child care crisis here locally? It's just, you know, I was not aware of the economic impact of the child care shortage. And it's, it's really interesting to read about. Okay, so for more on that, um, it's in this week's edition of the Times Independent. And I'm hoping you can touch on uh, another piece in the paper about Utah Raptor State Park. Absolutely. Uh, Folks who want to camp at the forthcoming Utah Raptor State Park, i.e. the Dalton Wells and Willow Springs areas north of Moab, are going to have to pay a $15 per night fee for camping starting on Sunday, May 15th. And this is according to a statement from the Utah Division of State Parks. 
Okay, so $15 nightly fee. You know, what's out there right now? I mean, I feel, you know, the visitor center isn't yet built. <laughs> There's no structure out there. So what are people paying for, Sophia? Uh, dispersed camping still. Um, okay. Spokesperson Devin Chavez said that there are permanently constructed bathrooms, dumpsters, and portable toilets throughout the area. But right now it is definitely still dispersed camping. I don't think there are, you know, spots with grills and, and picnic tables. <laughs> okay. And as uh, reported in the Times, independent it looks like campers can pay um via these iron ranger locations at the park's entrance or they can go online um why the why the 15 dollars per night fee can you talk about that yeah as people may know willow springs and dalton wells have long been an extremely popular dispersed camping area both for workers in town who maybe can't or don't want to find housing as well as for a lot of visitors um and there have been well-documented impacts to the area as a result of this i mean you know crushed biocrust and ecosystems human waste issues overcrowding i mean i've heard reports of folks discharging firearms in the early hours of the night, mm. potential safety concerns as well. Um, so I think part of the issue is just to, I, I think the state park just wants to manage um, and control and, you know, limit to a degree camping in that area and, and charge potentially for upcoming facilities upgrades. You know, this this is likely, of course, to affect, like you said, people who are long-term camping out at Willow Springs. Um, we knew this day was coming, though, as soon as the state park was announced by or was created by the state legislature. Yeah, at this time, there is no fee for day use. There are, you know, popular um, mountain bike trails in the area, mm-hmm. as well as like an access point to Arches National Park. And right now, they're not charging a fee for any day use. Okay, so you can still go out there and access the trails without paying. It's just the uh, if you want to stay overnight situation. Correct. And finally, Sophia, um, there is an interesting piece on uh, County Commissioner Trisha Dean and a recent experience she had. Um, <laughs> can you talk a, just a bit about this? Yeah, Trisha Dean, while hiking last week in a New Mexico forest, was attacked by a rabid fox in the middle of the day, and she actually managed to uh, kill it with her bare hands as well as a rock. <gasps> for more on this riveting account, pick up a copy of the Times Independent this week, um, as well, you know, both for the story of the attack and Hadeen's challenge in combating rabies because she was attacked by an animal that had rabies. I mean, short answer, she's fine, but okay. <laughs> it was definitely quite a, a, a struggle to get care. Okay, obviously the story is in the Times Independent, but I did want to note that she had kind of casually mentioned this in a, um, I want to say a planning commission meeting, right? It had been mentioned in at least one public meeting. At least one public meeting that she had mentioned this. And then I think, uh, you know, local media was like, wait, what? I got a tip off from somebody <laughs> in, the, in the county courthouse. I will say. Um, what did you find interesting about this story? Um, rabies is terrifying, is the main takeaway from mm-hmm. this. Uh, treatment, if you take it, is 100% effective. But if you don't take it in time, you are almost guaranteed to die within about mm-hmm. 10 days. Wow. Okay. So this is also like some sort of PSA for, you know, what to do if you were exposed to rabies. Absolutely. Sophia Fisher, staff writer at the Times Independent. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. Fire personnel worked on a prescribed burn on Ray Mesa earlier this month. The Moabson News was there and has a report on this fire management technique. Allison Harford explains. Prescribed burns have been 
happening more recently because um, wildfire season's like picking up. Mm-hmm. And so it's really important to do prescribed burns for a couple of different reasons. They're intentionally set and managed fires um, and they can reduce a buildup of fuel and so reduce the risk of intense wildfire. They maintain the health of fire dependent and fire adapted species, mm-hmm. which we have a lot of out here in the desert. And um, they can alt- they can also alter vegetation patterns on the landscape. So Rachel was invited to go to a prescribed burn on May 4th. She went with 22 fire personnel from the Bureau of Land Management and the U.S. Forest Service up to Ray Mesa, and then walked out to the 60-acre section of BLM land that's home to one of the few old-growth ponderosa pine gatherings Mm. in the Moab Field Offices District. And, you know, what did she see out there? Like, how do they conduct this burn? Yeah, so fire personnel carry a pack with food and water for the day, um, and they also carry an emergency fire shelter in case the fire does Mm -hmm. get out of hand. They also carry radios for communicating across the burn unit, hand tools for clearing the ground, and chainsaws for felling trees, um, and then they have drip torches to light the fires. And they have extra fuel for the torches and the chainsaws. And so they go up there and they have these little drip torches and they'll start a small burn and it's not supposed to get really big um they kind of just want these small burns to go through and burn up Mm -hmm. the old pine needles and stuff um and so the ray mesa burn was really important because it supports the health of those ponderosa pines because ponderosa pines are fire adapted species they don't need wildfire to germinate like some species do but they do benefit from these low intensity ground fires that clear out the understory because then that allows young trees to thrive. Mm. And so Rachel found that in a natural cycle, ponderosa forests experience fire every 5 to 25 years, um, which will clear out the fuel. Mm. And before the West was colonized by European settlers, Native Americans used fire deliberately to manage the landscape. Mm. Um, But by the early 20th century, the U.S. introduced a federal policy that aggressively suppressed all wildfire. Mm. So these natural fire cycles were interrupted and ecosystems were changed. Um, But now that means that when when wildfires do happen, they often burn larger and with more intensity than if the natural fire cycle had been allowed mm. to continue. That's why these prescribed burns happen. And it takes a lot of planning to do this. Um, the BLM monitor the moisture content of plants to determine when they're right for a burn. Um, they can't be too dry because that would facilitate a too intense fire. And also weather conditions have to be right. It can't be too hot or dry or windy. Mm-hmm. Because that could make a fire too intense. Um, But -hmm. if it's too humid, then the fire won't carry at all. Um, And so this day that Rachel went was overcast and the air was cool and it was kind of like a perfect day. Mm -hmm. But the fire didn't burn as energetically as they hoped. So they had to go back the next day. Yeah, the conditions have to be absolutely perfect. So this was happening on May 4th. Um, I know throughout the late winter, early spring, they've been burning. And it seems to be like the same thing. We'll get calls Mm -hmm. here at the radio station um, because someone sees, you know, smoke on the mountains. And they're like, what's happening? Then we double check and Mm -hmm. we're like, oh, it's this prescribed burn. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's like super weird to live in a wildfire area and I feel like everyone's very sensitive to seeing smoke on the horizon but yeah the prescribed burns are a good thing you know you explained like the reason for these prescribed burns it seems like the culture around um doing them has changed a lot in Mm -hmm. fire management is there anything else to say there yeah so the BLM field office has about 20 units with these ponderosa forests Mm -hmm. um and they're hoping to get all of those units onto a 10-year 
burn rotation. And so um, they're still kind of figuring out like when is best to burn, but they're Mm -hmm. trying to get back to these like natural cycles almost. Okay. And then um, I'm glad to have you here because the Moab Sun News is always full of events Mm -hmm. and it sounds like there's a lot coming up this weekend and next weekend. Yeah. Where do you want to start us off? Let's start with the hydroponics workshop. So Community Rebuild is hosting Dan Kyrus, who is um, an author and an educator. He's studied renewable energy, plaster building, sustainable neighborhoods, um, and hydroponic gardens. And so he is coming to Moab on May 15th to do an introductory hydroponics workshop. He's going to be teaching people super introductory methods, um, but these are all things that could be like you can set up a hydroponics garden in your living room. And so he said he grows a lot in one quart canning jars and a lot in five gallon buckets. Mm -hmm. And Dan also believes that this is the best way to live a sustainable lifestyle because it takes a lot less water um, and it also reduces the need for any Mm -hmm. pesticides. Um, And then you're also growing food in your home, Mm. which reduces like any travel needed to Mm. go get food. And I'm remembering that the Mobson News had an article about the libraries hydroponic garden. Hydroponic gardening is very popular here. Um, And it makes sense. I mean, I have a garden in the backyard and I have to give it so much water every day. And Mm. whenever I forget, I go outside the next day and my tomatoes are like Mm. half dead. I'm missing one day. Right. So maybe hydroponic next year. (laughs) Right. Okay. So that event is coming up. What else do we have? So Science on Screen, which is a program by Science Moab, um, is also kicking off this weekend. The first movie is on Friday, May 13th at 8 p.m. at Swanee City Park. Um, And they're showing Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and pairing that with a talk by local archaeologist Elizabeth Horacook. The purpose of this science on screen series is to pair um, these movies with local science. Um, And so Christina Young, the founder of Science Moab, said that she thinks it's really important to have a space where we can all get together and learn things and talk through things. And by doing this through movies, she's trying to show that there's no like ivory tower Mm -hmm. where scientists are. It's you know, we have these local scientists in our community who are available as a resource to anyone. And also science pops up in a lot of places, including movies. Mm. In watching Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Indiana Jones goes to find and eventually take the Holy Grail. Mm. Um, but watching it now brings up these questions of like, how do we interact with cultural artifacts and mm-hmm. what do real archaeologists do to study and preserve right. human history? Okay, so that's coming up. Remind me the date again. So it'll be today at 8 p.m. at Swanee City Park. Finally, the Moves and News um, has one more event to highlight uh, related to the Moab Music Festival. Yeah, so the Moab Music Festival is in its 30th year, and so it's organizing a high water festival, which is a series of concerts held from May 20th through the 22nd, um, which is next weekend. And so I talked to Erin Groves, who's the festival's director of development and community engagement, and she said with this festival, they're really trying to reach out to the Moab community And so there's a series of concerts. One of them is a Colorado River float and concert. Tickets are $175, so a little pricey, but that's more meant for like the traditional Moab Music Mm, Festival audience. Um, Mm. But there will also be two concerts 
on that Saturday, the 21st, um, there's a family music hike in the morning and a garden concert at Sunflower Hill Bed and Breakfast in the evening. Mm. Um, and the family music hike is one of the first times that the festival has held a hiking concert for children ages five and up. Mm. Usually their hiking concerts are for children 12 and up. Mm-hmm. And so Aaron said this music that they're playing for this festival is designed to be enjoyed by young kids and their families Mm -hmm. and it'll be a much shorter hike than usual like half a mile Mm. Um, and so those tickets are $20 for adults and five for students and then to round out the weekend there will be a free community concert in Old City Park on Saturday May 22nd at 3 p.m. The community concert is like a staple of the official festival in the fall Mm -hmm. also and so participants or anyone going are encouraged to bring blankets and picnicking supplies and just spread out on the lawn of old city park and enjoy free classical music allison hartford staff reporter at the moab sun news subscription info and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com And that's the Weekly Newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest coverage of the Moab area. You can find the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes of the news on our website and podcast. And as always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.